Howdy, folks. This is Joe coming to you solo. Uh, Dan's not here with me today. Coming back from Winter Park right now. Um, but I wanted to do a, a tech q and I put out some feelers on Instagram about a week ago. Had a whole ton of responses, and I, I, I whittled them down to three, maybe four if we have time that I'm going to jump into. But um, I want to regularly do this. Um, bikes are very important to me. You know, I, I always joke that, like, Dan cares about the training. I care about, you know, the the racing and the and the, the kind of technology side of things. Um, and I joke that his is is the more important half, and, and it probably is. But I think that um, we all need to to have a little bit more respect for and to better understand our bicycles. You know, because these are the machines that like facilitate this crazy, wonderful sport that we do. Um, you know, and it's not just like the shoes, the helmets, the, even the bike computers. Um, you know, like all of it matters. And, and I think most people don't understand it well enough. Um, so like I said, wanted to dive into it, make it a little more digestible for you. Get to jump into these three or four. Um, and I think if you listen to this and um, even apply one or two of the things that, that you know, I'm, I'm going to go into, um, you could potentially have a, a much more productive, fun experience. I know that if I had had this when I was in high school, um, it would have helped me a lot. It would have sped me up a lot. So let's dive right in. First off, we have how much air should you put in your fork? And I'm coming right out of the gates with a wishy-washy answer. It depends. <laughs> um, there's not a single good answer to this question, you know, because every fork and every shock is going to be a little different. So like, for example, a Fox 32 and a Fox 36 are going to need an entirely different setup. Um, a RockShox SID from 2021 is probably going to need a different setup than a RockShox SID from 2016. Um, and a, a Cannondale left, you would need something else entirely, right? Like there's no one number and, and some brands like, you know, I know Fox, I think RockShox has recently too, but I know Fox has, will even print on their forks. If you weigh this much, you should have this much pressure in your fork. Right. And like, that's a great starting point. Um, but I don't think that's the perfect answer for everyone. So this is something I really think people need to pay more attention to. Um, I cannot tell you how many times I've seen people spend a ton of money on a really posh mountain bike and then just not set up the suspension, right? And and like right there, you you didn't you didn't need to spend the money, right? Because like a five thousand dollar bike with properly set up suspension is going to be better than a ten thousand dollar bike with suspension that's been ignored. Um, and in the like the, the best place to start, the, the first place to start is by setting your sag. And you might have heard folks say like, oh I'm running twenty five percent sag or I run thirty percent sag or whatever. Um, uh, and this basically refers to how much your suspension compresses under the weight of your body. And when I say the weight of your body, I mean the weight of your body. So like you're not, you know, kids in the parking lot pumping up and down on their suspension really hard, you know, squishing it down. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about just how much your suspension is going to compress under the weight of your body, right? So when you, you can go and see where your sag is right now. So go get on your mountain bike and very carefully, very slowly, just kind of lower your weight onto it and see how far your, um, your suspension sinks in, right? And the kind of golden rule of thumb is that you should be somewhere in between 20 and 30% um, sag. So basically, your suspension should collapse 20 to 30% just under the weight of your body, right? Like, if you get on your bike 
and your suspension doesn't move down at all, that's a problem, right? It's essentially, it's going to feel too stiff on the trail. It's not going to perform well. If you get on your bike and your suspension collapses 80 or 90%, um, that's not going to work very well either. Like you may as well not have suspension in either of those extremes, right? And so what you basically do to it to manipulate this is to put more air into your fork to stiffen it up or to lessen your sag or release air from your fork or, or your shock, I should say. Um, there'll be a little air valve and it's kind of, it's like a little Schrader valve. There's a little button in the middle, basically you press to let air out. And then you have to have a really special piece of equipment called a shock pump to add air. A normal floor pump, a normal bicycle pump will not work. You need a shock pump, right? Because forks and shocks are, are very, um, there's basically a very small air canister inside, right? Um, and depending on the system, it'll work differently, but the, the essentials are the same, right? It's a very small canister of air and, um, <laughs> it's, it's pretty high pressure, right? So when you pump up a tire, you're talking like 20 PSI on the road, maybe up to 80 or hundred PSI, right? In suspension, you're regularly up, up around hundred PSI, maybe, maybe even more. Again, totally depends on the system, but, um, get a shock pump. They're not that expensive. I, we have several, um, I take one in my car with me because I'm really picky about my suspension. Um, your suspension will change at different elevations. You know, I have a different setup for, you know, Deer Valley than St. George. Um, as you go up higher, the air pressure changes, your suspension changes, you have to manipulate it. I don't think everybody needs to do that to have the perfect, uh, perfect experience, but I've found that it's helpful to do, and I'm picky enough about it now that I manipulate my suspension pretty much every time I ride my full suspension bike. Um, I have a hardtail. Many of you know, I don't really play with the suspension on that very much. Um, but yeah, even, even then I'll, 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 you know, I'll change it from time to time. Um, so again, to basically, to set your sag, what you're basically wanting to do is see where it's at right now. There'll be a little ring on your fork or your shock somewhere, ideally. And basically you slide that all the way down. So it's really close to the main body of the fork or the shock. And then you just kind of sit down on the bike, you know, kind of get into your riding position, kind of get into like the attack position they taught you in Nike or whatever. Get bit, you know, get into the position you'd be in when you're descending and um, see how far down that ring goes, right? Because that ring will basically slide until you stop. And then when you get off and your suspension releases and it returns to its original place, that ring will be left wherever you were at. Um, Fox suspension does not have numbers to tell you where it is, but a lot of rock shock suspension will. Um, you don't, it doesn't need to be perfect. You know, like I can't tell the difference between 24 and 25% sag, but I can definitely tell the difference between 10 and 30, right? Uh, I think most cross country riders should be around 20 ish. Um, it's a personal preference thing. I like my bikes to feel really efficient and direct. I like less sag. Um, if you're riding really rough stuff, you might do, I, I run a little more sag in St. George than I do in park city, for example. Right. So like you'll play with it over time. You'll see what you prefer, but, um, <laughs> do it right. Like, um, take the time, set up the suspension, uh, to, to sag the proper amount at least, right? Like that's step one. Um, <laughs> there's a second step that isn't necessary, but I think you should do as well. And that's your rebound, right? So your sag and your rebound are the two main suspension settings that you need to worry about. If you're super into trailer enduro racing, there'll be 20 others that you can look at. They, they sell these, if you you might've seen, if you're kind of a nerd like me, um, uh, rock shocks has this little thing called the shock whiz that you can screw onto your suspension. It'll give you 80 different metrics about <laughs> like what you should adjust and whatnot. I don't think you should do that, but I do think all mountain bike riders should be aware of how much sag they like to run. They should make sure that their suspension is at that much sag when you ride it. Cause again, air will escape the system over time. Your suspension will become more squishy over time, you know, 
and it'll change at different altitudes again. Um, but then you should also be aware of your rebound. When I say rebound, I, I mean exactly what I said. It's, it's just how fast your suspension returns to its original setting, right? So I push down on my fork, it bounces back, right? If you push down on your fork and it doesn't bounce back, there's no air in the system, right? You'll just bottom it out. Um, it's basically how, um, how quick it bounces back, right? So um, there'll be a little dial somewhere on, on any high-end fork or even, even entry-level fork these days, like anything above a Kmart bike, is probably going to have somewhere where you can change your rebound, right? Um, uh, it'll be a little dial on forks. It's usually up, up, the, up near the top where you'd lock it out. Um, on on uh, shocks, it'll be somewhere, somewhere on the body of the shock. Just a little knob. Um, I should say, I, I take that back on on a fork. It'll actually usually these days be hanging out of the bottom. Like you know, the fork. If you kind of look at the bottom of your fork, it, it's open. And on one side or the other, it'll be a little dial. I was talking about your compression there at first. That's, I don't, you don't really, I wouldn't worry about that too much um, uh, uh, for, for this discussion. But again, so in the bottom of your fork hanging out, you'll have like a little dial you can turn, right? And you can either speed up your rebound so that your suspension returns to its original position quicker or slow it down, right? This is not something you'll play with a lot. It's, it's kind of a set and forget sort of deal. Um, you know, really in like some professionals and, and then like a lot of people ride trail or enduro will change their rebound because depending on if you're having a, like a run with a lot of really small bumps or something with a lot of big hits, you want to manipulate that for our purposes, play with it. I would say like the easiest way is to slide it all the way to one side, see what that feels like. So you can see the really fast rebound, right? And then, and then turn it all the way to the slow side, right? Like on Fox forks, they should have like a little, a rabbit and a turtle, right? They make it really easy to see like turn it all the way to the slow and you'll see it feels super gummy. You can kind of push it up and just watch it go right back to its full position, right? And then on, on the, the fastest setting, it'll feel like super, super, it'll rebound really, really quick. A lot of people confuse fast rebound for good performance. They are not the same thing. Most folks will have, like most folks who don't know what they're doing, you'll look at their suspension and, and they've never serviced it. They've had the bike for four years, never serviced their suspension. It gets feeling sticky. They discover the rebound knob and they see, oh, if I turn this more, my fork feels normal again, right? And they'll basically substitute servicing their suspension by um, uh, like turning their rebound up all the way. That's a mistake I see all the time. So I, I guess the first takeaway is get your suspension serviced for reference. That should be every, every season or two at least, um, maybe even more for some riders in some situations. If you've had a bike for five years and never serviced, uh, serviced the suspension, you will be literally as well served getting it serviced as you would buying a new bike. Like I had, I had clients at my previous job who would buy a new bike every year because like, oh, my old one feels bad. And I'd be like, go service the suspension. And they'd be like, no, I want to buy a new bike. And you know, maybe it's an excuse or whatever. And I just take their credit card anyway. But like, the point is most people have their suspension in, in poor condition. And then if they know what rebound is, they'll dial it up all the way, right? You should be somewhere around the middle. Um, I kind of like slightly faster rebound. I'll go, you know, maybe four or five clicks from all the way to the fast side. Um, I don't really think anybody on a cross country bike would ever have either extreme, certainly not really slow rebound, but that's, that's just me. Um, again, play with it, see what you like. And that's more of a set and forget kind of deal. Um, a quick note on service. Um, <laughs> I've seen this a lot and I don't want anybody to feel picked on, but in my observation, the RockShox SID forks that come standard on a lot of Scott Sparks um, need a lot of love and a lot of service. Now they're very good pieces of equipment. They're extremely light. They feel great when they're properly serviced. 
but it, it's been my observation that several writers who have these, and it's especially the, there's, there's the current generation, go one generation back from that, like the forks that were going out on 2018 to 2020 bikes, um, they need a lot of love. And I've seen people where like at the end of a season, they'll have this really nice, ridiculously light 21 pound spark and they'll have this sit on the front that compresses maybe 20% of the way through the travel and then feels really sticky. And it's like, it feels like it almost clicks as it goes down. Um, get it serviced, you know, like it, it's a nice bike. It's worth the money. Um, go ride is my go-to uh, suspension uh, center. There's several locations now. Um, take an afternoon, get it done. You know, I, I, it's my personal observation that Fox suspension does not need to be serviced as often as RockShox suspension to feel good. And this mainly applies to my area of expertise, which is the SID and, and the pike a little bit at, well, on the RockShox side. And the SID's their cross-country fork, pike's the kind of traily fork. Um, and then on, on Fox's side, you get the 32 and the 34, which are like super XC and then kind of down country. Um, so those are the forks I'm most familiar with can't really speak with any level of expertise about Fox 36, 38 or 40. And then with rock shocks, it's, it's lyric and, and boxer and whatnot above that. That's less important. The point is <laughs> like, if you're listening to this and you have a, 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 a rock shock SID fork from that time period, consider getting it serviced frequently. And again, great piece of equipment, nothing wrong with it. I've just found that the service interval on those is really short and that there are a lot of Nike kids running around with forks that feel like garbage. Um, and that robs speed, makes it a less fun, uh, less fun time when you ride it. So definitely consider getting that done. All right. Next up we have uh, Fox Live Valve versus RockShox Flight Attendant and Auto Adjusting Suspension in general. Um, so a bit of background. Because we're in XC, efficiency is everything, right? You know, when you're riding a cross-country bike and you have especially a full suspension cross-country bike, mostly a full suspension cross-country bike, if I'm honest. Um, if your suspension is open, if it is unlocked and it, it is allowed to compress completely and you are climbing, it will squish underneath you, right? This robs energy. It feels bad. It's not very direct, you know, like um, uh, not ideal for our purposes. For a lot of people who just ride tra uh, casually, you know, if your suspension bobs a bit, it's not a big deal. But if you're if you're racing an XC, it, it matters, right? Um, and for this reason, most of the cross-country forks, again, your, your lefties, your Fox 32s and 34s, your RockShox Pikes and um, SIDs, will have um, a little dial somewhere where you can um, uh, lock them out, right, on, on the forks. And I should say, I guess it's more important that your shock locks out. I, my bike right now, the fork lockout's been broken for months and I haven't fixed it, but like the shock in particular, um, and again, mostly on cross-country shocks, you'll have a little remote somewhere, either on the shock or on your handlebars that will allow you to open and close the system or, or, or lock and unlock, I think is the easier way to understand that, right? And when it's locked out, your bike will feel like a hardtail or even kind of feel like a road bike, like totally stiff. It's not going to squish. So you climb up the smooth hill, you know, you climb up Armstrong with your suspension locked. And then when you want to go downhill, or you're going to go over a rough section. You either flip the switch on your fork or shock or hit the button on your, on your, um, you know, use the remote on your handlebar to unlock it so you can go over the rough section, right? Um, way back, like I think, I think almost 20 years ago, Specialized decided that that was a pain and that your suspension should be able to do it for yourself. So they came up with this genius thing called the brain, uh, the brain suspension system. If you have uh, an old uh, stump jumper hardtail or any specialized epic pretty much from the last 20-ish years, it'll probably have brain suspension, right? There'll be a little brain on it. And you'll be familiar if you if you ride one of those bikes that if you're riding on kind of a, a smooth, you know, like a bike path or something or a smooth trail, it'll feel totally stiff. You know, your bike will feel like it's, it's the suspension's completely locked out. 
and then when you hit a um, like a bump, you'll feel like a like a clunk or kind of a chunk feeling, right? And that's basically um, there's like a marble somewhere inside the system, I guess. And when you hit a bump, it it moves and that allows fluid to move through the system and your suspension opens up again, right? Um, this system was polarizing. Um, if I'm honest with you, I don't personally like it. I think it's really, it's neat and I love that it exists, but I don't actually like riding it. I've ridden a few brain bikes. Um, I, I felt that it wasn't, it's not very responsive. It takes a second. It's still pretty rough. Um, and that's why, that's kind of part of the reason I've always said that like specialized epics, and this isn't really true of the current generation, but previously we're like, <laughs> that's the full suspension bike for people who really want a hardtail, right? You know, like it'll be a little smoother than riding a hardtail, but it's not like your standard full suspension bike. Um, and then about how many years ago, it was back in 2018, I think, Fox decided that they were going to solve this problem and they came out with something called Live Valve. And Live Valve was essentially a computer on your bike that was made up of three sensors. And for reasons that I am not intelligent enough to explain, it was able to discern whether or not you were on rough or smooth terrain, whether or not you were airborne, whether, you know, there's all these different metrics it could figure out, it could detect um, force coming through the suspension system incredibly fast. It was like 5,000 times a second or something ridiculous like that, right? And basically, it did what the brain promised to do except perfectly, right? And it came out and I didn't believe it and then I got a live valve test bike and I rode it and I was like, wow, this really does work. You know, the system defaults to being locked and as you're climbing up the smooth climb, it feels like a hardtail. And then, you know, you start pointing downhill or even if you hit an uphill rock garden, the system can somehow tell that it needs to be open, right? And, and it opens up. And it was really, really cool. I'm super impressed. Um, and then I found out how much it was going to cost. And I was like, that's ridiculous. You know, it's, it's, it's thousands of dollars, right? And it kind of came, came to the point where like a few cross-country bikes came with live valve, just a couple trail bikes, if we're honest. Like I think Pivot and Giant were the brands that bought into it the most, if I remember correctly. And um, like even today, like the really high-end Pivot Mach 4 SL um, comes with a uh, live valve, right? And, and my take on it was kind of like, it's really cool and it does work, but it doesn't really work better than a remote, you know? And, and like, sure, remotes are a pain. It's another thing that's on your bar. Um, it's another thing with a cable that needs to be replaced sometimes. Um, but like, I also know when I want my suspension to be open and shut and, uh, or when I want it to be locked and unlocked and I'm perfectly capable of, of, of changing that, right? And so I kind of decided, I'm like, you know, if you bought Google stock in uh, 2002 and you've got all the money, if you're a brain surgeon or something and, and money means nothing, sure. But I'd have customers ask like, oh, you know, I just bought a bike last year without live valve. Is it time for me to sell and get a live valve bike? And I'd be like, no, not really. You know, you don't really need it, um, but it's cool, right? And then a couple of years ago, Fox um, updated, or maybe it was even more recently than that, Fox updated it, kind of made it a little smoother because some people felt that it was too harsh and XC focused. And then very recently, I think less than a year ago, uh, RockShox came out with their version of Live Valve, which is called Flight Attendant. And again, <laughs> for reasons that I am not intelligent enough to explain, it could do the same thing, right? The computer can tell it's like, oh, we're hitting a bump and we're going to immediately lock and unlock the suspension. Um, the difference with flight attendant to my understanding is that it has an extra mode, like, you know, live valves either open or shut. Uh, flight attendant kind of has like a middle mode and then um, flight attendant is wireless where uh, live valve requires some wires, right? So I, I think from what it sounds, it sounds like live valves probably um, 
I don't want to say inferior to flight attendant because I haven't used it, but on paper, flight attendant seems like the better system. But my takeaway is kind of the same. It's extremely expensive. Right now, I think it's only coming on a few really, really, really high-end bikes. Um, cool thing. I don't want to say it's gimmicky, but it's definitely not necessary. It's at the very end of my list of bike upgrades. Um, recently, someone on the team approached me looking for a bike. I found a ridiculously good deal on a pivot that had it. And uh, I was like, cool, you know, it's a, it's a good deal. It comes with live valve. You'll love it. You know, like, I don't know, even if I had the money, I still kind of prefer to have my own lockout capabilities, but really cool thing. Um, and that's kind of essentially my take on it. Not necessary, really neat. One of the guys on my team has it. Um, one of the guys I, I really, whose technical opinion I really happen to respect, by the way, has it. Um, hope you don't mind me name checking you here, Connor. Um, and he digs it, you know. Uh, when I wrote it, I was like, eh, it's cool. I don't need it. He says he really loves it. You know, I don't, it's definitely not bad. <laughs> you know, there were, there were some people who were like, this is bad and stupid and dumb and we definitely don't need it. I'm, I'm not one of those people. I think it works amazingly well. It's an incredible engineering achievement, but you know, not totally necessary. Um, all right. Question three, and this is a really good one. Um, it's a really complicated one. Um, uh, how do you fit your bike or where do you go? <laughs> um, bike fit is the most important thing that most people don't care about. Um, and when I say bike fit, if you're not familiar, I'm basically referring to the way that your bike is set up relative to your body. You know, all frames um, have different proportions. And I'm not just talking about a size medium Scott Spark being different than a size large Scott Spark. I'm talking about a size medium Scott Spark and a size medium Cannondale scalpel being like totally different. And again, I mean, like maybe maybe all bikes are kind of broadly the same, but like some bikes will be a little longer, or a little taller. They'll have different um, uh, characteristics that will make them interact with your body's um, uh, measurements differently, right? Um, you know, like you can you can change how long your stem is. You can go with a longer, shorter stem. You can go with a wider, short, uh, narrower bar. Um, you can adjust how high up or down your seat post is, right? Um, and then you can get into really granular stuff like how do you clock your cleats slightly one way or the other? How Where are they on your shoe? You know, how long are your cranks? Like there are a million things to consider when it comes to quote unquote bike fit, right? And my short answer is uh, talk to an expert. You know, um, like Dave Harward at Plan 7 is awesome. Um, all those folks over there are really capable. Most bike shops these days will have somebody who can do kind of basic bike bike fit stuff. Um, you know, there's several people on our team that I, I think are really qualified, but like hop on Google. I don't know what big bike fitters other than Plan 7 are kicking around these days, um, but I've had a really good experience with them. Um, yeah, that's my short answer on where to go. Um, I am not like, a, I mean, there's no like certificate you get where you're an official bike fitter. You can't get an MD in bike fit. Um, but I'm definitely not a professional. That said, <laughs> there are three things that I've seen a lot of people do. Two of them I've done myself that um, I can warn you about and I can kind of walk you through. Um, and, and the first of these concerns is your seat height, right? That is the, I think the kind of core bike fit thing that most people change frequently. Like if we're honest, most people go into a bike shop and never change the stem, handlebars, maybe even saddle they get. But most people know that you need to move your seat up or down a little bit, depending on how tall you are. Um, and like true beginners, people who maybe ride their bike to work or like uh, occasionally go and pedal around the neighborhood, 
almost universally run their seats too low. And we've all seen it. We've all seen our grandparents ride a bike, right? Like the seat's way too low and their legs don't extend very far at all. And the problem there is obvious. You know, if you can't extend your legs, you don't have a lot of power, right? Now, the more common problem that I want to talk about and that I actually see, um, especially with Nike riders, is that they jack their seats up really, really high. Um, because they discover like, oh, if I move my seat up more, my legs can extend farther and then I have more power. And then for some reason they take it to the nth degree and they say, the higher my seat is, the more power I have, right? Like I have seen, especially in like, like the JV classes, a lot of really strong looking kids who don't know how to fit their bike and their seats just way up in the stratosphere, right? And their hips are rocking all the way side to side as they pedal. And that's a problem too, right? Um, there's kind of a golden zone. And, and again, you should talk to a bike fitter to find the ideal kind of position. But my, um, my tip is that you should basically have your saddle as high as it can go before your hips start to rock. And that's for most people, not all that high. I'm suspicious that more people listening to this have their seat too high than too low, but I, I can't say that with perfect certainty, but I'd say like, hop on your trainer if you have one or like have somebody film you and walk behind you as you ride and see as you pedal if your hips are rocking really far side to side and mine even still do this a little bit now because my body's sort of weird but like your hips shouldn't be rocking a, a, a ton when you ride they should be pretty pretty steady right like if you're if you're finding that your hips are rocking a ton your seat's probably too high um, if you find that your legs aren't extending very far and that your hips aren't rocking at all there's a chance you're too low um, but if you've been riding bikes for a while, you'll kind of know where it, it should be roughly. But I, you know, if, if the whole team were, was listening to this, I would assume that there would be 10 or 15, um, younger people who have their seats jacked up really, really high and, and should probably lower them a little bit. So again, if you can talk to a bike fitter, a bike fit these days is just a few, like, I think two, 300 bucks. I don't hold me to that. I don't know. I haven't checked in a, in a couple of years. Um, but yeah, get a bike fit if you can. Um, consider your fit um, as it relates to your seat. The The second tip I have is with your saddle, and this is pretty simple. Um, uh, your saddle should be roughly level. Um, basically, like the tip and the tail of your saddle should be kind of even, like the, the surface that you're sitting in should be roughly level to the ground, right? Um, I have seen a lot of people <laughs> ride bikes where the saddle like the, the tip of the saddle is way higher than the tail. Basically like the saddle is pointing up towards the sky, right? I don't know if this is a hot take, but I don't think any bicycle riders should have their saddle in that position. The one exception that you'll see is like on true downhill race bikes, the saddle points up, but that's an extreme use case. And, and frankly, like those riders aren't sitting down and pedaling very often, if at all. Um, for road biking, any sort of mountain biking, gravel, all of it, I think personally your saddle should be at least level, maybe pointing down a little bit. Now on the flip side, there a few years ago, there were a few pros, um, Yaroslav Kohavi comes to mind on the Mountain Bike World Cup, who ran their saddles pointed like down at the ground, like noticeably like a ton, right? And I'm sure there was a reason that they did it. I don't I don't think that's appropriate for most riders. Now, if you go back to 2016 and look at Joe Draper's bike, his seat is up way too high and his saddle is pointed down uh, towards the ground because he saw Yaroslav Kohavi did it and he assumed that that would make him faster. This is not the case. Um, a lot of people 
like a lot of Nike kids, especially in my time, had their seats way too high. And then they would all, they would point their saddles down, not just because the pros were doing it, but because that would make it feel like their seat was lower. They, I didn't realize that's what I was doing, but that's the only way I could accommodate the ridiculous saddle height I was sure uh, seat post like uh, extension I was shooting for was by pointing the saddle down, right? I don't think that's as common an issue as it used to be. I don't see it a lot, but I have seen several people um, that I know and ride with who have their saddles like like pointed up towards the sky. I don't. I think that is, I don't know, maybe this is a hot take, a bike fitter, correct me if you want. I think that is universally inappropriate. I don't think that serves anyone well. So again, like, you know, get out the little level app on your phone or something, kind of set it down on the saddle. And I think you should probably be about level. I don't think there are a lot of people who should go, you know, and, and point it down a whole ton. And if you find that your saddle is pointed up or down at all and you level it and your seat height feels wrong, change the seat height. Don't go back to where you were with the saddle. I, th I think, like I said, most people just kind of run your saddle level. Don't have it pointing up or down a ton, but certainly don't have your saddle pointing up towards the sky. I think that's um, a bad move. <laughs> um, my last tip is maybe a little more controversial and it has to do with your stem. Um, back in March or February, a, a lot of people attended this. I'm not sure how many, but back in March or February, we had, um, uh, maybe it was a little earlier than that, but we had this clinic with um, Lee McCormick that was excellent. I absolutely loved it, right? And um, just kind of like going over um, how to descend, how to ride a mountain bike down a hill properly, right? I learned a whole ton, but one of the most interesting takeaways was their belief that you should run your stem really far down. Essentially what I mean by that is that like, if you go, go out and look at your bike right now, and most people will either have a whole bunch of spacers underneath their stem on their steer tube or above their stem, right? And if, this, if the spacers are underneath your stem, it lifts up your stem really high. And then when, that, when your stem goes up, your bars go up, right? And so essentially you'll, you'll see a lot of people ride bikes um, where the stem is pointing up there are, and there are a whole bunch of spacers underneath it, right? And then you have this situation where your handlebars are really far away from your tire, where you're really upright. And if you kind of imagine like those city bikes that you like check out with the app or whatever, if you've ever sat on one of those before where you're like your handlebars are way above where you're sitting, right? Um, that's very comfortable if you've never ridden a bike before and you don't, you're not comfortable with bending over on one. Um, but you have no control. Like taking one of those over a curb feels kind of sketchy, right? Their belief, and it's a belief that I, I personally agree with, and again, if, if they're listening, they can let me know if I'm misattributing this, but your handlebars, I think, should be relatively low because you want your center of gravity to be low, right? You know, when you get into a, in a, in a really technical section, you should feel like you have perfect control of your bicycle. Um, you should be able to manipulate its direction um, very easily, and I feel that if you're really high up above your bike, um, you're going to be in a bad position. You're not going to descend well. This does not mean that everybody should, we, we say in the industry, slam their stem where they put it, where there's no spaces underneath it and it's pointing down. Um, mine happens to be right now. I don't think that's always a bad move, but if I had to err on one side or the other, I would go, I I would go with kind of slamming it a little bit. I think if you go out, go out to the garage right now, <laughs> pause this, go out to the garage, look at your bike. If you have a stack of spaces underneath your stem and your stem is pointing up, your bike is probably riding worse than it could be. And I would encourage you to try flipping your stem upside down and or taking out spacers, getting the handlebar down closer to, to the tire essentially to get your, your body position down. Um, 
this doesn't necessarily apply on road bikes. It's also kind of a beginner mistake to completely slam your front end because you see the pros do it. There are problems that can come with that. But from my observation, most people err too far on the other side and they feel like it's more comfortable to have all these spacers and the stem pointing up and everything. I don't, I don't think that does anyone any favors. Um, and again, I'm not the be all end all authority on this, but I think practically speaking, if you're new to this, I would try getting your front end a little lower and you will almost certainly find that you're not only in a better pedaling position, I think, um, but that you will have more control on technical sections. Um, beyond that fit, fit gets really hairy. Um, you know, like again, crank length, cleat adjustment, all these other things, talk to a professional. Um, don't Google it. Don't look at a forum where a bunch of idiots tell you how your bike should fit. Ideally talk to a professional who, who, you know, is, is like a full-time bike fitter or something like that. They're more and more common these days. Google it, find one again, Dave Harwood plans seven of the ones I've, I've, I've worked with before and they're excellent, but um, that would be my go-to. And it looks like we're at 32 minutes. So I, I will dive into this last question, which is basically like, how do you, how do you bleed your brakes? Um, and I, I toyed with how to answer this one because brake performance is, is key for me. I'm, I'm very concerned with how my brakes work. Um, but I can't explain very well how to bleed the brakes without a visual. Um, and I also know that there are just a plethora of excellent videos on YouTube walking you how to, through how to do it. Um, so my short answer is if you want to know how to bleed your brakes, Google how to bleed, you know, Shimano brakes, how to bleed SRAM brakes or whatever. Um, every, every brand's a little different and then watch a video. That's the easiest way. But I do think it would be interesting to kind of walk through if you're not familiar, how hydraulic brakes work, what bleeding means and why, why it's important. Right? So essentially, um, hydraulic disc brakes have two ends and a hose in between, right? On one end, you have a lever, then you have a hose and then you have a caliper, right? And the way it works is when you pull the lever, it compresses, it pushes a little piston, piston into a hose, kind of, uh, or not directly into the hose, but it pushes a little uh, piston that moves fluid through your hose, increases hydraulic pressure. And on the other end of the system, that increased pressure forces these brake pads. There's two pads to kind of squeeze together and bite your rotor, right? And so, uh, and so that slows you down, right? Arrests your movement. Um, and this is wonderful. The downside of hydraulic brake system and, and that's not just disc brakes, by the way. For a while, there are some bikes out there that have hydraulic rim brakes. It was a thing SRAM did for a little while. And it's the same, um, same concept. Actually, the same concept with any. There are other hydraulic, you know, there are hydraulic drivetrains now from rotor, um, some hydraulic seat posts and stuff like that. But any hydraulic system, what will eventually happen is you will get air inside of that hose. You'll get air bubbles, right? Because the, the systems aren't perfectly sealed. You know, they're not NASA grade over time as you break, as you modulate or, or change your system, um, air will be introduced. And when air is introduced, your performance goes down, right? Because like, and, and you'll find sometimes like if you ride your bike and you haven't bled your brakes in a season or two, right? Which is not uncommon. You'd be shocked how many people do that. Um, you'll feel like the brakes work, they work. And then all of a sudden the brake doesn't work, right? It goes all the way down to the handlebars and then you pump it a bit and it breaks again, right? Um, that is because there's air in your system. Um, and there are ways, especially I believe on Shimano brakes. And again, I'm not a mechanic, but, um, like on your Shimano brakes, if they feel crappy, it's actually pretty easy. Basically there's at, at the lever, there's a little, um, uh, kind of a plug you can unscrew 
and they sell a cool little cup that you screw into that and then basically you you dump some fluid into the cup and you start pumping your brake and at first you'll see all this kind of black stuff start to come out this kind of old fluid that's become contaminated with dirt and other other contaminants like that and then you'll see air bubbles start to come out right and what happens is those air bubbles and those that bad fluid kind of comes out and then that creates a vacuum where the good fluid kind of goes in right so we dan and i we call that burping your your brakes like a full bleed is like a is a fairly involved thing where you completely flush out the system completely replace um all of the fluid and that's not always necessary right like a lot of times i'll just you know burp my brakes really quick if they don't feel great um so again look up youtube videos on how to do either of those things um your brake should work perfectly 100 percent of the time um, if your suspension doesn't work that's a pain if your bike's not shifting well that's a pain but ultimately both of those will detract from your riding experience but they're not like a safety issue bad brakes are a safety issue um I've told people not to ride bikes before. I've been like, hey, you really need to fix this before you ride this bike again. This isn't safe. Like, you don't know if your brakes are going to work when you're going to grab them, right? And for some reason, like, there are a lot of us where it's like, I don't really know how to fix this and I want to take my bike to a shop. So I just kind of learned to live with it. And I, I, I think that's dangerous. Um, figure out how to bleed your brakes. Buy the little kit to do it. It's not expensive. It's something that you'll do a whole bunch of times, especially if you own and ride a whole bunch of different bikes. Bring it to a shop. But again, when you have a hydraulic system, you need to make sure there's not air in it. And, and there's a variety of means by which you can accomplish that goal. Um, look up YouTube videos on how to do them is, is my short answer. Um, and that's kind of a wrap. That's all I have to go into. I could have nerded out about a lot of that more. Um, totally interested in your feedback. I, I basically know everyone who listens to this. So hit me up, say, hey, you know, like, I'd love for you to go more in detail, into depth on these things or be like, hey, dude, you completely lost me. I don't get it. Um, and then again, send me your questions, um, uh, shoot me a DM on Instagram, email me at joedraper98 at gmail, text Dan and ask him, um, if we can talk about something here and, uh, you know, happy to dive into it. So, um, again, as a recap, play with your suspension, figure out how to make it feel good, care about it, um, get a bike fit and, and, you know, or, or, you know, start paying attention to the way your bike fits and then, you know, take care of your brakes and your bike in general, but your brakes in particular. And that's a wrap. Talk to you soon, folks.